Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, Wessel's Economic Update with Hutchins Center on Physical and Monetary Policy Director David Wessel. While the U.S. economy seems to be healing at last, the biggest threat to the global economy right now is Europe. Among the countries that share the euro, unemployment is 11.6% and 25% in Greece and Spain. Inflation is dangerously low. The euro is sinking so low now that it hasn't been this low since 2006. The politicians are paralyzed. The voters in Greece soon and perhaps later in Spain are poised to elect governments that vow to resist the austerity on which Germany has insisted as a price for assistance. The Germans, meanwhile, are convinced that the only cure for the rest of Europe is for them to tighten their belt, save more, and be, well, more like Germany. And if all that isn't enough to worry about, there's Vladimir Putin and his new aggressiveness that's threatening the geopolitical stability that followed the fall of the Berlin Wall. All in all, it's not a very encouraging picture. All this is putting enormous pressure on the European Central Bank, which is the one European institution that has the flexibility, a few tools, and some say the responsibility to act. I mean, if Fed Chair Janet Yellen has a tough job, and she does, ECB President Mario Draghi has an even harder one. Now, the ECB has a simple mandate, keep inflation just under 2%. But inflation is nowhere near that. In fact, prices fell by 0.2% over the last 12 months. And even if you exclude falling oil prices, inflation is well below target. Now, Mr. Draghi keeps saying, I can't do this all myself. He's pleading with elected governments to do more, to spend more on public investment, remove regulations that hamper efficiency. But he's also emphasized that he will do whatever it takes for the ECB to deliver inflation close to but under 2%. And it's now time for him to move beyond rhetoric. There's a lot of expectation, fueled by Mr. Draghi's comments, among others, that at their January 22nd meeting, the ECB will launch what's called quantitative easing, printing money to buy lots of government bonds, as the Fed and the Bank of England and the Bank of Japan have done already. But Mr. Draghi has a problem. There's a lot of resistance to this notion of buying government debt from the Germans, and there are even some lawsuits pending. So for despite all the talk about the importance of an independent central bank, it seems to be very tough for the ECB to pursue policies unless the German government goes along with them. Still, these really low inflation readings give Mr. Draghi a very strong case for doing more than the ECB has done already to boost the Eurozone economy, which after all represents one-fifth of the world economy. How Europe manages its latest crisis is going to have a significant influence on how well the rest of the world does in 2015. So we're keeping a close eye on Europe at the Hutchins Center on Fiscal Monetary Policy here at Brookings. On January 14th, we're going to hear from economic historian Barry Eichengreen, who has a new book out that puts the recent financial crisis and disappointing recovery, both in the U.S. and in Europe, into historical perspective. And then a couple days later, on January 16th, we've invited Lucretia Reichlin of the London Business School. She's a former research director at the ECB to talk about the current condition of the Eurozone and all the challenges it faces. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. My guest today is Brookings President Strobe Talbot. He's been president of Brookings since 2002, following a career in journalism, government, and academia, including eight years at the U.S. State Department and 21 years at Time Magazine. Strobe, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks very much, Fred. Let me just say that uh, I think the cafeteria, which now has two meanings here at Brookings, Uh, is a great innovation, and I'm delighted to see us taking advantage of 
new media and podcasts. Uh, the the other cafeteria, the one where we have lunch, is also kind of cool in that it gives us as individual scholars and people who work here a chance to get together not only among ourselves and trade ideas across disciplinary lines, but it's really the only cafeteria uh, on Think Tank Row. So we uh, have a chance to mix with our colleagues in the other outfits. No, I love it. And thank you for that nice compliment, Strope. I appreciate it. So you were born in Dayton, Ohio, grew up in Cleveland. What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, uh, the first professional ambition I had was to be an, uh, a pilot. That, I think, uh, waned uh, after I developed a fear of flying, <laughs> which I've never entirely gotten over. But that related, uh, Dayton is the home of the Wright brothers, right? Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, not, that's not so much the reason for it. I, it, may, it may have had something to do with watching uh, B-47s, which I guess were what were the... Uh, uh, the bombers at the time coming in and out uh, of the uh, of Wright Patterson Air Force Base, but uh, joking aside, I think probably a, a whole lot of kids of my uh, my generation were sort of fascinated by uh, by flight. Uh, I went through a very brief period where I entertained, uh, partly because I had a, a an uncle who was a very distinguished doctor, of going into medicine. But I was cured of that aspiration by two weeks of organic chemistry as a freshman at Yale. Uh, and I said, I, I basically bailed myself out of pre-med and, and went into uh, Russian studies. But fairly quickly, uh, and I would say uh, really even before I got to college, my uh, aspiration was to be a journalist. Uh, I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed reading. I thought that uh, journalism would be a career that would allow me to continue. Uh, what, what shall I call it? A, a liberal arts education and get a and get a living wage out of it. Now, uh, I read that your your parents were internationalists in the Republican Party, um, and they were also highly engaged in the civic life of of Cleveland, where you grew up. How did that affect your outlook? Really quite profoundly, uh, while I was a, a very young when we moved from Dayton, Ohio, which is in the southern part of the state, up to Cleveland, I can still remember the importance to my mom and dad of an organization called the United World Federalists, which was, a, uh, was born out of uh, World War II. Uh, and it was essentially a civic organization that crossed party lines. In fact, I think there was at least as much Republican uh, support for the idea as uh, in the Democratic Party. My, my parents, as you say, are, were uh, moderate Republicans uh, to promote the idea that if we were going to avoid another world war, there had to be some degree of, if not global government, then at least effective global governance. And that, that word, of course, is very much part of the vocabulary of the Brookings Institution, governance. But they, they, these were idealists, but they were idealists who also had a lot of uh, pragmatism. My dad had uh, spent the entire war uh, in the Navy. Uh, he was in D-Day. He had a lot of uh, very dangerous assignments. Uh, including as a as a salvage diver in the uh, in the North Atlantic, uh, and as I say, being part of the invasion, and my my mother uh, was working for the forerunner of what we now call IBM, 
the international business machine company, working on uh, punch cards for a big government project, and all she knew was the name of it, which was the Manhattan Construction Project. Uh, and of course, that turned out to be uh, the code name for a secret program to develop the atomic bomb. So in her own way, kind of a, a low-level uh, Rosie the Riveter, uh, she was involved unwittingly uh, in developing the atomic bomb. Uh, and of course, not only had the world uh, suffered the trauma of World War II, but we had also seen, uh, ironically, the United States in the role of the first and so far, and let's hope the last, country to use nuclear energy uh, to destroy entire cities. Well, that is fascinating. Thanks for sharing that, Strobe. Um, let's go on. You went to Yale, studied in Russian studies. Just a side note, that was also my major in college. Really? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, including the language? The language, um, Soviet studies, Russian studies, the whole the whole thing. Uh, I had aspirations to kind of do what you, you ended up doing, to be a diplomat, but I took a different path. Um, well, I didn't take the path of diplomacy either. Right. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get that, to that. that. <laughs> that. The path found me. Well, here's the path, as far as I could tell, uh, the, simple, the very simple path. Journalism, and then government service, then uh, academia, then leadership of, uh, of this global think tank. Uh, how do you think each of those endeavors prepared you for the next step? Well, it's something I've uh, thought a lot about with a combination of amusement, irony, uh, and, and some humility, I must say, uh, too. It's, uh, m my career has been uh, blessed with a lot of very good fortune. One critical piece of good fortune is that uh, when I uh, left Yale after finishing a BA in Russian studies, I went to uh, Oxford. And by pure happenstance, one of my classmates, an American classmate there, was a scruffy Arkansan by the name of Bill Clinton. Uh, and we got to know each other pretty well on the long uh, and really quite delightful uh, steamship uh, crossing of the Atlantic. But in our second year uh, at Oxford, uh, he, uh, as the world knows, uh, had thought he was going to be drafted into the uh, military to fight in Vietnam. And as the world also knows, he did not uh, get drafted. And he didn't have a place to live and to make a somewhat complicated story short, uh, he ended up sharing a house with another uh, American and we became very close friends and that had two uh, related effects on my own career. One was that Bill Clinton was then as he is now a polymath. He, there's, there's nothing he's not curious about uh, and he was fascinated by what was going on in, in Russia. And I took a, my first trip to Russia while I was uh, while I was at Oxford, and came back and told him about it. And he made a trip of his own, so he developed a uh, an interest of his own. Uh, and the friendship between us uh, always had a theme in it of well, Strobe, what's going on in Russia, and we would talk about that. So that uh, many years later, when he became president, he asked me to. Uh, help him uh, in his administration work on on Russia. But I, in the in the interim, as you as you say, I spent 21 years at, at Time Magazine, mostly covering 
international affairs, the State Department, national security, the intelligence community, uh, that kind of thing. I did. I had a couple of years where I covered the White House, but mostly it was uh, foreign stuff. And in the course of uh, those two decades, I learned a great deal about the craft of diplomacy, how the State Department worked, and that kind of thing. So that when it came time, uh, or when the the light, lightning struck, let's put it that way, uh, and President-elect Clinton asked me, uh, as did uh, Secretary of State uh, Warren Christopher, to come into the State Department, uh, it, my first reaction was, total terror, almost paralytic uh, terror. I mean, it was like an out-of-body experience. You wake up one day and uh, all of a sudden there's a limousine outside to take you to an office in the government and a lot of people are sitting around a table and expecting you to tell them what to do. But actually, I got over that pretty quickly. And one reason I got over it is that I found that a number of the skills uh, and experiences that I had uh, developed or had while as a journalist were actually uh, transferable uh, into diplomacy. Uh, To be a diplomat, to be a policymaker involves, um, among other things, an ability to understand how organizations work, uh, how to communicate in comprehensible ways both to the public and also to colleagues what's going on, uh, how to think about complicated issues in the world and simplify them without oversimplifying them to the point that that policymakers can de- design uh, solutions to tough problems. And long and, sh- long and short, it was. It turned out that journalism, while I had never intended it to be, uh, to have this dimension, was actually pretty good training for my uh, service in the government. Very interesting. That's, um, I want to jump ahead then to one specific episode. Now, there's so many episodes that we could talk about. Uh, I could pick one thing from your career, and I'm sure we could talk about it for a whole hour. But I want to zero in on one time period. It's June of 1999. Uh, you were the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, the number two official in the U.S. State Department. Um, and, the, and the senior most male in the State Department. Okay. My boss was Madeleine Albright. Right. That was a j- running joke between the two of us. She was part of that. She was a professor at Georgetown School of Foreign Service where I was a student. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, anyway. That's where I first knew her too. Okay. Um, so my understanding of the facts on the ground in two different places. Uh, the NATO bombing campaign against Yugoslavia was on. It had been on for a couple of weeks. But then India and Pakistan came close to the brink of possibly a nuclear war. And you were there at the State Department. Could this have been the most dangerous time during your career? And what, what was it like to deal with that? Well, let's talk about the two incidents because you, you've zeroed in on what I regard as the two most hair-raising and most, if I can put it this way, exciting uh, to be involved in. And in uh, in both cases, the United States played a role uh, in averting a really serious uh, military confrontation, uh, in one case involving India and Pakistan, and the other case uh, involving Russia and the United States, or Russia and uh, NATO. So uh, let me just uh, break them down in, in, in very short form. The uh, 
crisis that you're talking about with regard to India and Pakistan had to do with a long-running dispute uh, over the so-called line of control, a kind of ceasefire line uh, between India and Pakistan going back to the time of partition. Uh, And the Pakistanis moved troops during the winter into what were at that point unmanned uh, outposts of the Indian army. Uh, and they were on the Indian side of the line of control. Uh, and both sides got very dug in and were prepared for an escalation of the conflict. And President Clinton intervened diplomatically by having the prime minister of uh, Pakistan, who, by the way, happens to be the prime minister again now, come to Washington. And we had nonstop meetings in Blair House uh, over the course of a July 4th weekend uh, that ended up with uh, President Clinton persuading the prime minister of Pakistan to order his military to pull back, thus averting the confrontation. And another benefit of this was that the Indian government at the time, like all of its predecessors, had been very wary of the United States and thought that the United States had a reflexive uh, preference uh, for the Pakistani position. And I think this, the way in which the president uh, was able to use his influence with the prime minister of Pakistan to get him and Pakistan to back down, uh, created a basis of trust that uh, is still there uh, basically in the relationship between India and the United States today. With regard to the Kosovo conflict, the uh, Russian government at the time, which was headed, of course, by Boris Yeltsin, was very helpful in the diplomacy that tried to avert the need for the use of NATO force in order to stop the genocidal killing of many of the ethnic Albanians who made up the majority of the of the population in Kosovo, which was was an at that time, a, uh, a region of Serbia and under under Belgrade's control, um, when it became obvious that the Serbian dictator at the time, Milosevic, was not going to relent in this uh, ethnic cleansing uh, and mass killing that was going on in Kosovo, NATO felt that it had no choice uh, but to intervene, and Russia at that point backed out and opposed the military action. But when it came time to force Milosevic to accept a peace uh, that would require him to pull his forces out of Kosovo, essentially surrender, Russia once again joined in the uh, diplomacy, kind of three-pronged effort. Uh, And that was the United States, when I was representing uh, Secretary Albright and President Clinton. Uh, and Mariya Arasari, who was representing the European Union, and Viktor Chernomyrdin, who had been at one point Boris Yeltsin's prime minister and who was now a special envoy. And there was enough uh, solidarity among us to give Milosevic no choice but to step down and ultimately to be overthrown, by the way. And it was a great... Uh, And given what's going on in U.S.-Russian relations today, it seems like a very long time ago in a different universe. But it was a a perfect example of how Russia and the West could work 
uh, together. There was a, a hairy moment at one point when some rogue elements in the Russian military tried to basically undercut the deal. Uh, but uh, Boris Yeltsin, uh, with some help from, uh, from us, uh, was able to beat that back. Well, let's continue then uh, with in both India and Russia, because they've been in the news a lot lately. On, on Russia and Vladimir Putin specifically, do you think he wants a new conflict with the West? Is there a new Cold War brewing? Uh, and what do you think is the best approach that the United States and, and Western allies and other allies can take? Well, I have um, had my own dealings with uh, Vladimir Putin going back to the late 1990s, uh, shortly after uh, Boris Yeltsin brought him from St. Petersburg uh, to Moscow. I dealt with him in, I guess, four capacities. One, as the national security advisor to the Kremlin, that is to Yeltsin, uh, then as uh, prime minister, uh, then as acting president, and then finally as uh, an elected president. Uh, my sense of him, and I've written about this in a, in a memoir of uh, those years, uh, my sense of him from the very beginning is that he is what he was, if I can put it that way, which is a cop. Uh, and, may, and more specifically, uh, a KGB guy, and more specifically still, a counter-espionage KGB guy, uh, which is a little different than a spy. It's somebody who ferrets out spies, whose profession is essentially uh, paranoia, if I can put it that way, uh, preemptive paranoia, you might call it. Uh, and I always had the sense that he was not an enthusiast uh, for the reforms that uh, that I think make Boris Yeltsin a bottom line, very positive figure in history, and somebody that I hope uh, his own people will, will will respect and even revere uh, in years to come. But they certainly don't now. Uh, there's no question about that. So flash forward to to now, uh, for complex uh, reasons that have deep roots in the past. Going long back into history, uh, Putin has made himself a champion of uh, what I would call Russia's grievance about constantly being uh, bullied and uh, t patronized and taken advantage of by the West, which is, uh, I think, um, itself a highly paranoid narrative of history. He also um, is uh, determined... Uh, to uh, use Russian nationalism, I would even say Russian chauvinism. And when I say Russian, I mean ethnic Russian, religious, cultural Russian nationalism. And I say that because a lot of the citizens, somewhere around a 20 to 25 percent of the citizens of the Russian Federation are not ethnic Russians and therefore don't, I think, buy into this. But it's worked very well for him uh, as he has taken advantage of what he sees as the weakness of the West. I think he is uh, making a big mistake uh, in exaggerating that weakness. Uh, and of course, the uh, triggering event of the current crisis uh, is his uh, actual annexation of Crimea and his virtual invasion and, and annexation of much of, of uh, eastern Ukraine. It, is, uh, it does have some uh, eerie and, and dangerous similarities to the Cold War. It also has some differences. Uh, 
Russian chauvinism is not the same thing as Marxism-Leninism, which was an internationalist uh, ideology. Uh, and I don't think that the danger of nuclear war between the United States and Russia is anywhere near what it was back, say, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Berlin Crises. But it's not totally out of uh, the question. My, the biggest uh, worry I have about the current situation is that uh, Putin, who uh, detests the expansion of NATO uh, into what used to be allies of the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact countries, and also into the Baltic states, and he might, uh, by miscalculation, think that he could get away with some kind of intervention in the Baltic states, which are members of NATO in a way uh, that would uh, trigger a really major crisis. And the Baltic states do have many ethnic Russians. I think one of them has a yes, lot of ethnic uh, Russians. Uh, well, two of them do, actually, uh, Latvia and Estonia. Uh, and yes, uh, in fact, this is a what we call, a, or what our, our historian friends call, a counterfactual. But had the NATO not expanded, uh, starting back in the 1990s and into the first years of uh, of, the, of this century, and had NATO simply retained its membership uh, from the Cold War days, uh, and if those three Baltic states were not members of NATO, I think it is very, very probable that Russia would already be clomping around in its size 14 combat boots in the way that they have uh, intervened in Ukraine. Now you referenced Putin's view that uh, view of the weakness of the West, yet at the same time, he's agitated about NATO expansion, and those two ideas seem kind of contradictory. Yes. Yeah, that's a good, that's a very good point. It, it's a, uh, <laughs> uh, anybody who grew up in the Soviet Union spent a lot of time studying contradictions, and uh, but not always understanding the contradictions in their own positions. It's in the following sense that he uh, is contemptuous of the West. Uh, and I'm going to put it in fairly uh, uh, rude terms, but those are the ones in which he is used uh, publicly. He uh, has very little respect for the president of the United States. Uh, he has scoffed publicly at uh, there being uh, quite a few women uh, in powerful positions in Western governments. Uh, and by the way, uh, the, the one that com most comes to mind is the one who understands him best, and that's Angela Merkel of Germany, who was, I think, uh, proved to be a superb leader of the West, and also the leader in the West who understands Putin better than anybody else because she grew up in East Germany. Her Russian is just about as good as uh, as his German. Uh, she really gets him, and she stood up to him very well. Uh, he is also presenting himself as a. This is going to sound a bit strange, but uh, this is the way he puts it: uh, sort of family values, conservative uh, social issues. Under his reign, uh, there has been persecution and prosecution. Of, of gays and, and les lesbians, sexism, racism, uh, anyth anything you want, it's all there uh, and it bears a kind of eerie resemblance to what are some of the fringe uh, sentiments in, in the West. And, and, and national, nationalism of a very uh, aggressive and intolerant sort. So what can be done? I think the short answer to that uh, is a two-track policy. 
that resurrects, because uh, Putin has made it necessary to resurrect, a version of containment. And I'm using that word advisedly. I know it's associated with the Cold War, and I said earlier that there were differences with the Cold War, but there's also one similarity with the Cold War, and that is we are once again dealing with an expansionist Russia, a Russia that will use hard power, uh, I would say stupid hard power as opposed to smart power, uh, to expand its own borders uh, by means of, of force. Uh, and that means uh, revitalizing the uh, containment uh, mission uh, of the North Atlantic Alliance. Uh, and, but the other part is, is, is engagement with those parts of Russian society, uh, the Russian private sector, and even if we can find them, uh, parts of the power elite uh, in Russia who are invested in what was the uh, signature policy of the uh, late Soviet Union, that is under Gorbachev, and the early years of post-Soviet Russia under Yeltsin, which is a commitment to two propositions. One is that the system of the past, the communist Soviet system, wasn't working. It wasn't working for the Soviet Union itself, uh, and it had to be jettisoned or massively reformed. And the other is that uh, if Russia is ever going to be what I've heard Russians describe their aspiration, we just want to be a normal modern country. If that's going to happen, it means Russia needs to join the rest of the world. It means to buy into the upside of uh, globalization, integrate with international institutions. And there was a lot of progress in that direction, which Putin in many respects is reversing. But that doesn't mean that everybody in Russia and every subcategory of people who have influence there aren't uh, nervous about the direction in which he's taking and we should do everything we can, not so much to treat uh, to treat them as a fifth column because that's the way Putin will see it, rather to just keep lines open to them, support them where it's possible and hope that uh, over time the, the bankruptcy of Putin's policy will become apparent to his own people. And I think what's happening with the economy in Russia right now uh, may be uh, increasing the awareness of the downside of his policies. Before we shift over to India, I want to uh, recommend a book by our colleagues, Fiona Hill and Cliff Gaddy. It's called Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. It came out a couple of years ago, but they have an updated edition coming out very soon. And I think that is a highly uh, instructive book about the character Vladimir Putin. It is a terrific book. It is uh, one of the very best books uh, out there in the subject. And I think it's it's appropriate, uh, if not a little bit ironic, that it's been translated into into Russian. It's an extremely sophisticated kind of dissection of Putin's biography and personality and and how uh, those personal features are translated into policy. Uh, our other uh, colleague is, uh, is Angela Stent, uh, who is a non-resident uh, senior fellow here and a professor at uh, Georgetown. And For, was once written, a professor of mine. Uh, and I think of her as a teacher of mine. Uh, she too has a, a, a new book out that is not only the best, but I think really the, the first comprehensive study of the 
the roller coaster that Russia has been through from the end of the hardline Cold War period through the Gorbachev reforms and then uh, in the post-Soviet period from reformism to what I would now call uh, backsliding. Well, I'll add links to both of those books in the show notes on the webpage. Um, let's go over to India and touch on it just real quick if we can. I was trying to explain to my young daughter that there are more people who voted in India's elections last year than are alive in the United States. I mean, more than twice as many people. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, she was kind of impressed by that. Uh, so Narendra Modi, he's elected prime minister of, of the largest democracy in the world um, last year. Comment on what you foresee in U.S.-India relations and for also India's kind of global position. Well, let me pick up on uh, what you what you told your daughter, which is uh, true. Uh, it, it, it's kind of self-evident when one hears it. Uh, it was sort of it was sort of a duh moment for me. But as I, our, our colleague uh, Tanvi Madan, uh, who is the director of our India initiative, pointed out to me every time India has a national election, it is by definition the largest. Uh, organized political event in the history of the world. And of course, they had a uh, an election last spring. It's not like our election where polls open at, you know, whatever it is, 6.30 in the morning and close at night. They go on for weeks. It's an extraordinary feat, just in organizational terms, not to mention in the uh, fair and free way the process uh, works and the extraordinary turnout. Uh, we Americans should be embarrassed uh, when we compare our turnout rates uh, to those of uh, a number of other countries, including India. Um, Prime Minister Modi won by a landslide, uh, and there are two reasons for that. One, there was a kind of fatigue with the Congress uh, party-led uh, coalition uh, which had kind of lost its way, which is kind of uh, on a personal level, I have to say this, I find it a little sad because I think that former Prime Minister Manmohan Singh uh, was and still is a very, very admirable character uh, to whom not only India owes a lot, but so does the world because as finance minister in the early 90s, he helped open India up to the world. Uh, but Modi wasn't just a beneficiary of disillusionment uh, with the Congress Party. He's also a very powerful politician. He uh, is like a gov was like a governor in one of our states who ran a very tight ship with some controversy along the way, including uh, relations between Hindus and Muslims, but a, a very, very competent uh, chief executive. And what he now has to do is to prove that he can take his executive skills from a governorship, which, is, which has a lot of power, to the prime ministership, which involves a lot of compromise. Let's, uh, let's shift to um, some other issues. Uh, you, you've talked often about what you call existential threats, uh, two of which are nuclear proliferation and climate change. Uh, can you comment on where you think we are today in both of these arenas? Not great. And there's a, a third, which is the danger of catastrophic uh, pandemics. We have had a hint of that with the uh, Ebola scare and, and other things. But I think uh, the two that you've singled out are the two that we have to uh, pay the most attention to. Let's start with nuclear uh, proliferation because we've been aware of that uh, for, for longer. It's uh, simply a, 
an arithmetic fact that the brilliant idea that Dwight Eisenhower had back in the 1950s under the slogan of Adams for Peace, uh, which, which basically said, let's have, a, let's have a deal in the world. Those countries that have nuclear weapons at a, after a, at a certain date will can keep those weapons as long as they commit to draw their arsenals way down, and the rest of the world will forego having nuclear weapons uh, in, um, in exchange for getting uh, international support for peaceful uses of nuclear energy. That hasn't worked. That hasn't worked. The, the original five were the, uh, the Soviet Union, China, the United States, Britain, and France. Uh, and now, of course, uh, we have uh, India and Pakistan, as we've already uh, as we've already discussed, uh, and uh, and North Korea, and uh, nobody in the world uh, who follows this uh, has any doubt that Israel has uh, nuclear weapons, and there are a whole bunch of countries knocking on the door. Uh, Iran gets the most uh, attention, as well it should. And if those negotiations, which are one of the big suspense stories in the world today, uh, fail and uh, Iran does develop a nuclear weapon, uh, it's Jenny bar the door, uh, including in that region, uh, particularly in that region. I think it would be very likely that the Turks, the Saudis, the uh, Emiratis, and uh, the Egyptians, if they can get other things uh, uh, working, uh, would all uh, want to join that club, as would other countries around the world. And that's, that creates an incredibly volatile and dangerous uh, situation, and we've got to do a better job of getting our hands around it. As for climate change, uh, there has been some progress uh, in the United States, uh, the importance of which I'll come back to in a minute, uh, but with no help whatsoever from the Congress. The Congress is totally paralyzed. Uh, it is, it is an, I think, a, both a, an outrage and an absurdity that the United States, which is cumulatively, that is over time, far and away the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases, it's fallen into second place on an annual basis behind China, uh, has not been able to develop a uh, national climate policy. Individual states have climate uh, control uh, policies and laws in effect, but we can't as a, as a country. And until the United States can uh, get its own act together, it's not going to be able to lead very effectively in the world, although the Obama administration, I think, is doing the best imaginable job by using the powers of the presidency and the executive branch, right? With the EPA, the the, yeah. the proposal that he's yeah, and, and and this uh, deal uh, that that John Podesta and Todd Stern, on behalf of the president, were able to work out with the the Chinese was a very important demonstration that the two largest emitters uh, in the world, the United States and China, are prepared to make some significant. Uh, take some significant steps at the Paris conference. And there's even some indication that India may feel a little peer pressure, given that China has uh, has signed up to some goals. Uh, and that may uh, unlock uh, the deadlock that we've been seeing for so long. 
Uh, let me also here plug another book, and it's one that you co-authored with uh, Bill Antholis, and it's called Fast Forward, and it's about the politics and ethics of global warming. Well, one of the great things about my job here, which uh, I, I love my job, uh, is that I do get a chance to um, uh, put aside managerial and administrative and fundraising responsibilities from time to time and work with colleagues. And Bill, who, uh, alas, we've lost as a colleague, at least as a full-time colleague, he has been working on the climate issue from when we first knew each other in the Clinton administration when he was in the State Department and the White House. Uh, and it was um, an effort to, in a very few pages, uh, it's, a, it's a short book, about 120 pages, lay out the, the basic issues uh, in ways that would be comprehensible to uh, a layman. And I think it's important that uh, while a lot of Brookings uh, books and research papers are at a very high level of sophistication. We ought to look for opportunities to address major issues in ways that are not just fact-based and peer-reviewed, uh, but also uh, rendered in a way that a uh, that is easy for interested, informed citizens to inform themselves a little more. Okay. I'll also add a link to that in the show notes. Speaking of opportunities, uh, let's look ahead on the horizon. Uh, what do you see out there that makes you hopeful about the world and also domestic affairs? Perhaps we might call these existential opportunities. That's a great question. Um, I guess the first thing I would say is, uh, is kind of a jujitsu answer. Uh, I think the awareness uh, in many important circles of opinion makers and policy makers that we've got uh, big problems uh, is itself a good thing. I don't think that we as a community uh, of uh, policy uh, analysts uh, and we have, of course, a lot of interchange and some of us have backgrounds as policy makers, we're not whistling past the graveyard. We, we, we're not kidding ourselves. We know that and – and, and I think the American people, to stay with our own country, are very aware that our uh, democratic institutions are not uh, performing up to their potential, not, not meeting the standards that our founders had in mind. I spend a lot of time in Europe. Uh, Europe, uh, under the aegis of the European Union, is, I think, one of the most important, bravest, most visionary, and most uh, uh, promising experiments in transnational governance that the world has ever known. And the Europeans are acutely aware that they are not uh, doing very well right now in that in that experiment, and that's the beginning of wisdom, and that's the beginning of getting out of the rut that we're in. There's that word governance again. Uh, it comes up all the time in everything that we do here at Brookings. You speak about it a lot. Can you talk very briefly about about governance and what that means? In a nutshell, it's how communities organize themselves uh, to protect both the collective and the individual. That's what governance means. And a community can be the Brookings Institution. You know, we have a governance structure here. Uh, it can be the city of Washington where we hang out. 
Uh, it could be the United States of America. It could be the uh, in, in specific areas. It could be in trade, uh, NAFTA. Uh, it can be the European Union, and there's got to be effective governance at the level of the globe itself. I want to uh, I want to ask you one final question, Strobe, um, and, and I wish we had time for more because I feel like we could talk for a long time. Uh, next year, 2016, is uh, Brookings Centenary. Uh, can you reflect on what that means to you and, and where you hope to see Brookings headed in its second century? Well. The you know in in a way of course uh, one has to admit that the anniversaries are a bit arbitrary they are uh, accidents of the calendar as it were but uh, they're useful <laughs> useful accidents of the calendar because they they concentrate your mind uh, to have um, an outfit that has uh, existed for a century and in our case that means going back to the eve of America's true emergence as a global power because uh, 1916, when Robert S. Brookings founded uh, what became the Brookings Institution, uh, it was under the Wilson uh, administration. By the way, this is a parenthesis of some importance, I think. Robert S. Brookings was a, a private sector leader and an educator and a Republican. Uh, who went into the administration of a Democratic president to help prepare the United States for its entry into World War I. So there, is a, uh, there was a bipartisan uh, theme to the very founding uh, of the uh, institution, which now takes its nonpartisanship very seriously. We say nonpartisanship rather than bipartisanship because we believe that Neither party or the two parties don't have a monopoly on truth and wisdom. Uh, and we are now, uh, as we come up to our centenary, first of all, uh, uh, determined to put more momentum uh, into the globalization of, of Brookings. I mean, Brookings was born at a time when the United States was becoming a global power. And we now have uh, three overseas offices and numerous partnerships around the world. Uh, and I think uh, we're going to—I I know we're going to use the centenary uh, to make sure that uh, w whether it's the composition of the board, the composition of our scholars, that we have a lot of people who are not Americans, uh, that we're uh, not just a Washington think tank, and we're not just an American think tank. We're a global think tank. I would say that is. The uh, in terms of our mission, uh, what we want to uh, do. And then, of course, there's at a more mundane level. We want to make sure that we are uh, that we are have a sustainable uh, financial base uh, for uh, achieving uh, the, these goals, and that uh, growth, which has been part of our our history and. In the, in the 13 years that I've been here, we have gone from a $40 million a year operation to a $100 million a year operation. We want to make sure that that's smart go growth, it's sustainable, and that it plays up our distinctive advantages. Well, it's an exciting time to be a, a part of the organization and, um, and uh, under your leadership as well. So thank you very much, Strobe, for this great interview. I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Fred. To learn more about Strobe, visit our website at brookings.edu. If you have any questions for any guests of the show, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. This podcast is made possible by the production skills of Zach Colzer, 
the art design of Jessica Pavone, and web support from Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. You can listen to episodes on our website at brookings.edu bcp, on iTunes, and on Stitcher.